It was the moment we chose to build a truly global Britain. It is time to be bold, to seize the opportunities. Part of England's story about itself is that it has always ruled the waves. We've given ourselves the chance to rejoin the world. I want us to be a truly global Britain. The truth is, though, that until the Spanish Armada, England was very much the lesser of Europe's seagoing nations. The Spanish Armada makes England into a, a pronounced naval power, which is not before. We are taking this wonderful, this exciting, this generational opportunity. I want Britain to be a great global trading nation. England, as a result of winning this war against Spain, enables itself to leave the European continental affairs. We are not the lion, but it is up to us now to let that lion roar. The English colonies in America established before the Armada were abandoned. After the Armada, they succeeded. So what if the Spanish Navy hadn't been destroyed on our western shores? Might England have never become a global empire? Was the Armada the event that gave England the idea that it was bigger than Europe. To some extent, as a result of being successful in the Anglo-Spanish War, that the English can actually look beyond Europe. They voted to leave the European Union and embrace the world. In 1588, 26 ships of the Spanish Armada sank off the Irish coast. Only six have ever been found. This is Treasure Island, the hunt for the Falcon Blanco, an RTE original podcast. So we're quite happy in our mind that we have found the wreck of the Falcon Blanca. It was very easy to see. There's nothing here. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. <laughs> Episode 4, The Gentleman Adventurer. I mean, you have to consider that the quantity of documents in Samanca, I mean, it's probably, I think the official figures are 14 kilometres of documents, if you were to put them side by side. Kiranowski is my man in the Madrid archives. He has a unique and invaluable skill set in hunting the Falcon Blanco. He knew how to navigate the Samanca's National Archive, where documents are still stored in bundles of rolled papers. And the bundles are enormous. And so, I mean, you could spend, you could spend a lifetime going through them if you didn't know what you were looking for. I had asked Kieran to see what documents he could find to answer mysterious Mellis Clune's belief that the Falcon Blanco was carrying treasure chests stuffed with gold ducats and silver pieces of eight. Was there an inventory cataloguing undreamed of wealth? After a few days of trawling, Kieran emailed me to say that he had found an inventory. Um, um, just. Whether on purpose or not, the man knew how to build suspense. Would the Falcon Blanco be a treasure ship or just a ship? Stop teasing me. No, it's your one I had open. 
I already knew that the Falcon Blanco wasn't a galleon. It wasn't even an officer ship, as Mellis Clune had told the 1969 divers. It was a class of ship called a hulk. Its job was to carry troops and provisions. And, unsurprisingly, the ship's manifest reflected that. Tuna, cheese, chickpeas, bacalao, I suppose it's cod, well, like very salted cod, meat, salt, pine wood planks, cow hides, wooden pulleys, nails, iron hinges, chains, steel locks, steel chains, possibly they are shackles, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. Biscuit, vinegar, wine, animal fat for cooking and for greasing guns. But there was no 20,000 gold ducats in a chest. There was, though, a wealth of information on what it took to supply an army and plenty of artefacts which could survive 430 years underwater. Stakes, ladders, animal skins, wheels, horns, cutlasses, shackles, steel washers... Three rovers and eight pounds of musket balls. Eleven rovers and twelve pounds of lead. So the archives had yielded the best information possible about what was on the ship. Next question. Did they have any information on where it was sunk? What that search threw up was a near heart attack moment. In this list, they have the two Falcon Blancos as having returned to Spain. Sorry, you're telling me my ship, you're saying that the Falcon Blanco Mediano arrived back in Spain safely. Oh, I know, that's what I mean. You know, I mean, there's an awful lot of confusion between the documents. Eventually, we figured out that there were actually four Falcon Blancos in the Armada. Two that went home early, two in the fleet that sailed up the channel, the Falcon Blanco Mayor and our ship, the Falcon Blanco Mediano. The Mayor made it home to Spain and the Mediano was lost. That particular document had just got them mixed up. What I wanted to find in the archive was a first-hand account from a soldier or sailor on board the Falcon Blanco Mediano of where it had gone down. The big problem with that? Almost nobody from the Falcon Blanco survived. Not the weather, but the English. The English uh, claim themselves that they and their Irish collaborators killed 1,100 of these survivors. Hiram Morgan, an Armada historian from University College Cork. What happened the survivors following the storm is genuinely shocking. The greatest maritime disaster in Irish history was swiftly followed by one of the greatest mass murders. For example, in Sligo, a gallo-glass mercenary single-handedly set upon the men dragging themselves on shore. Yeah, that's a man called Malachlan McCabe who... who uh, advertises the fact that he had killed 80 of these poor survivors coming on shore and just essentially used them as, as target practice. And many of the local chiefs, like the O'Malley chief, uh, kills at least 100. The Falcon Blanco crew were initially taken into the protective custody of Sir Murrah O'Flaherty, the chieftain in West Galway. But when Richard Bingham, the aptly named Flail of Connacht, demanded that they be surrendered to him, the O'Flaherty's handed them over and the English hanged all of them or had their heads chopped off. The English make a clean sweep of the Spaniards in the territory. Obviously, there was no Geneva Conventions at the time, but were there not general ideas of gentlemanly conduct in war, particularly where you're talking about unarmed prisoners? There were. Like uh, These men were quite clearly not in themselves a threat. What the English claimed was that 
if you let these people alive, they would have inevitably congregated in groups and might have joined forces with the local Irish, so they, they would have become a threat. Normally, officers and gentlemen would have been kept alive and ransomed back to their wealthy families in Spain. But acting on orders from Dublin, Bingham killed nearly all of them too. Massacring defenceless soldiers by the laws of war, uh, it's a pretty extreme thing to have done. I, I'm sure their conscience was irked. Uh, and there are some pretty awful things where Bingham in particular leaves people alive but then decides to execute them after he's got information out of them. So that, that, that seems to me particularly vicious when you think you've been let off and then a fortnight later they decide to execute you. It was a bloodbath. So what would the chances be that anyone from the Falcon Blanco had survived and had left a written account behind them of what had happened? Incredibly, as I worked my way through the archives here, there were two wealthy gentlemen who were spared and made it home to Spain, Don Luis de Córdoba and his nephew Gonzalo, the son of the Marquis de Ayamonte. He and his uh, nephew uh, were, were very lucky. And of all of the 26 ships to sink off the Irish coast, of all of the sailors and soldiers to survive the mass murder at English and Irish hands, guess which ship Don Luis de Córdoba was on board? I have the charge of a hundred men in this ship that is cast away, the White Falcon. Don Luis de Córdoba, listed on the crew manifest as... And wait for this, this is the most aspirational job title you have ever heard. A gentleman adventurer. Not only was Don Luis on board the Falcon Blanco, and he and Gonzalo were the only two out of 1,100 prisoners not killed, he was interrogated by Bingham, the flail of Connacht himself, and a written account of that interview survives. When the Spanish fleet came before Plymouth, we were 140 sails of all sorts. Where of four score and 16 were great ships for the fight, and the rest were small vessels for courage. Stage by stage through this whole misguided naval crusade, Don Luis is there telling it as he saw it. At Plymouth, we met with 70 of the Queen's ship. The Queen's ships stole into our wind and shot at us. This felt like a big break, an authoritative first-hand account from the military captain on board the Falcon Blanco of what had happened from the moment that they had engaged English ships in the channel. The fifth day we came before Calais and there anchored and chained ourselves. And in the night we perceived six ships falling upon us on fire. By reason whereof, we were driven to cut our cables and set sail at which time a great ship was born and a galleas cast away on the sands. Once they reach the neck of the English Channel, they manage to stop in Calais, and that's when uh, Drake famously sends in these fire ships, which are old ships filled with explosives, which disperse the Spanish fleet, and then they become subject to attack at Graveline. In modern-day military terms, what the Armada was attempting to do was a bit like a pilot trying to land a jet on an aircraft carrier in pitching seas with a blindfold on. The plan was not to invade England directly, but to hook up with the Duke of Parma in the Netherlands and provide an escort for his 30,000 troops on barges. This Armada is very risky. This 
so-called joining of hands with Parma. It, it was going to be a huge difficulty. Uh, it, if, say, if weather conditions were difficult or if they couldn't find safe harbourage, then they have to wait the best part of the week before Parma can get his men on to barges and get them out of the channels out onto the coast of Flanders. After that, it all fell apart. The broken-up Catholic fleet got pushed north up the channel by a Protestant wind and missed its rendezvous with Parma. The Duke of Medina Sidonia was unable to get the Armada to come about and engage the English in battle in an orderly fashion. It's after this that Don Luis tells us he received his orders calling the whole thing off. After this, the Duke of Medina assembled all his forces that were left and found that he had lost by six and then gave order for us to return to Spain. General perception is that the Armada fled ahead of Sir Francis Drake up into the North Sea and around Scotland to head for home and that it was only by accident that ships ended up getting dashed on the Irish coast. But many of them actually ignored their orders and made for Ireland. Well, some of these ships, uh, because they were... um, were, were damaged in the English Channel or, or some of these Mediterranean ships because they, they were leaking. Uh, they had come into the Irish coast trying to get uh, food or water. At that stage, most of them were pretty OK. The, the disastrous thing is that uh, a couple of days later, this big storm hits. The records show the Falcon Blanco dropping anchor three days before the storm hits. Don Luis readily admits that he had been warned to stay away. But... About Norway, the great tempest took us and beat these men, now prisoners, to the Irish coast, of which coast the Duke had before given us great charge to take heed. And then, in the single most infuriating thing that has happened since I started this whole quest, at this point, Bingham stops interrogating Don Luis. He's gotten the intelligence that London is worried about out of him, what were the Armada's plans and was Ireland a part of them, and that's it. Job done. He records no more about where the Falcon Blanco sank. Nothing. If I didn't already hate the man for murdering over a thousand Spaniards, now I despised him. Exhausted by 16th century riddles, I turned my attention to a 20th century mystery. Was there a group of commercial salvage hunters also on the trail of the Falcon Blanco? A number of people on Inishbofin remembered dive teams exploring around Davalon, some as recently as two years ago. Who were they? What had they found? The National Museum keeps quite meticulous records of all of the finds made by the public and reported to it. Good morning. I'm here to see Nessa yeah, O'Connor. No bother, yeah. Philip Boucher, right. Nessa O'Connor has a job title to die for. If life doesn't allow you the opportunity to become a gentleman adventurer, then you should aspire to be an assistant keeper of antiquities. Um. So, we have various records. I checked our collections database um, for any sign of reports over the years of objects that might possibly in any way relate to historic shipwrecks. And from that, 
Um, All up and down the west coast? Or no, in... just targeted more to around Badenikil Bay, Inishbafen. The first thing that Nessa's files proved was that there was quite a few eccentrics down the years contacting the museum with Falcon Blanco theories, most of them unsupported by facts. Nessa politely suggested that I didn't need to spend too much time looking at them. And if she thought that I was the latest in a long line of gold-struck half-wits darkening her door, she was far too polite to say it. Mr Harvey wished to carry out a magnetometry survey of Balnekil Bay in an attempt to establish the location of the Falcon Blanco Mediano. Um, said, said he spent a There was one very serious person in the files, a man called Ed Harvey. He had made his money inventing an educational toy called the Polydron, bought a holiday home on the mainland across from Inishbofin and Davalon, and in retirement had dedicated himself to finding the Falcon Blanco. He said it was simply a personal project and challenge and that he had no interest in financial gain. He said that his own financial position was that it would not be necessary for him to think in those terms. Ed Harvey might not have needed the gold if there was any, but that wasn't the full story. His partners in his hunt for the Falcon Blanco was a company called Comex. Uh, managing director of Comex, John Kingsford, was a personal friend and that he had indicated his willingness to lend a sophisticated magnetometer for the purposes. Comex was a thoroughly commercial outfit, the company behind the most successful Armada salvage operation ever, Robert Stenwee's discovery of the Girona near the Giant's Causeway, which you'll remember from episode one. For example, the 400 gold coins, 700 silver coins. And here they were on the trail of the Falcon Blanco in 1988. The National Museum had been impressed by Ed Harvey and accepted his bona fides as a well-informed amateur enthusiast. But Comex and Robert Stenwee were there in the background and archaeologists and treasure hunters are not natural bedfellows. Our goals and intentions are completely diametrically opposed. I mean, the, na- the nature of salvage is as a money-making exercise, which most often in our experience, you know, sits very uncomfortably with the pursuit of knowledge. If Ed Harvey had found something from the Falcon Blanco, he hadn't told the National Museum about it. He claimed that his beliefs about the resting place of the ship were more meteorological than archaeological. He said that that was, at least to some extent, because of his research into the channels in the bay and the wind direction on the night the ship was wrecked. So, But it's supposition, it wasn't based on archaeological evidence? No. My colleagues in, in the National Monument Service may be able to clarify whether that licence for a magnetometer survey was issued and whether the, the magnetometer survey off. went mm. ahead. I am here to see Finbar Moore in the Underwater Archaeological Unit. The Underwater Archaeological Unit of the National Monument Service is based on the other side of the Liffey from the National Museum. The magnetometer survey that Ed Harvey and Comex were seeking a license for is basically an underwater metal detector. If they got the license, there would be a record of it here in the Customs House. And if they found any part of the Falcon Blanco, it should also have been reported here too. Have you guys ever found anything? Has the Irish underwater underwater archaeological unit ever gone looking for the Falcon Blanco? Had they searched and found something? Had somebody got there before me? Or 
had they searched and found nothing. Did you guys hand out a licence in the late 80s to a man called Ed Harvey? That's all on the next episode. When we take to the water. Get your air in. Last buddy check, air in your jacket. Check with the skipper, all clear, skipper. All clear, okay. all clear. Clear behind, go. go. Treasure Island, The Hunt for the Falcon Blanco. Reporting by Philip Boucher-Hayes, sound engineering by Brendan Russell. If you know anything about this wreck, please email me at falconblanco at rte.ie and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag falconblanco.